Hi, it's Dan here, and I wanted to let you know that this is a very special episode of the show. Some glimpses from my chats with four previous guests. You'll hear about 10 minutes of each guest's 60-plus minute conversation, which will give you a small idea of the many topics that we covered. Also, you can listen to the entire conversation at either linernotes.ca or on any podcast platforms. Just search for Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Enjoy. Robbie Lane has been a Canadian institution since the mid-1960s, a living historian of sorts, and he remains active today with Robbie Lane and the Disciples, as well as a Zoomer radio show. Ronnie Hawkins was doing a matinee at a place called the Concord Tavern in, in uh, Toronto. And uh, on a Saturday afternoon matinee, people underage could go as long as you sat in the dining side. So we all went um, weeks on end, and so did just about every young musician that I knew in the city. And uh, that was when he was with the Hawks, of course, Robbie Robertson and Garth yeah. Hudson and Levon Hellman, all those original guys. And so it was just like an awakening because we saw what a really tight band and heard what a really tight band could be. And uh, that was really when we sort of decided as a band we wanted to try and do this on a full-time basis. One Saturday afternoon at the Concord, a friend of mine had gone to Hawkins without my knowledge and said, you know, there's a young singer here and he's got his band with him and uh, maybe you'd like to hear him. And so, without giving me any uh, information beforehand, Hawk got up to do his second set and did one song, and then he introduced me. Well, I was floored. I I had no idea this was going to happen, but I got up and uh, did a couple of songs with the Hawks, and after that, uh, Ronnie came to me and said, why don't you bring your entire band next Saturday afternoon? You can do one set. Of course, I thought this was like the thrill of a lifetime. Meanwhile, he was just so hungover from the party the night before, (laughs) he was looking for any excuse to have somebody else play. Through that experience, uh, we recorded a couple of songs which were uh, released on the Hawk label and charted on Chum, which was the big deal back then. Um, And uh, so, you know, that really got us started. And it's funny with Ronnie Hawkins, like he, he led to so many other artists. That was he just very open and very inviting to a lot of musicians and gave a lot of people their start? He did. I mean, the list is uh, endless. And some of them have gone on to be, you know, huge music influences like David Foster. The first time I saw him play yeah. was with Ronnie's band. So you were on the, the CBC Music Hop. Yeah, um, I did that show probably once every six weeks for a couple of years. Yeah, what a great thing for a young guy, right? You must have just felt that this all the all the everything fell into place for you, and just thought this is. And then you did the uh, Go Go the 1966 uh, show. Yeah, that was the fir- that was the first year on CTV, uh, a Go Go 66, and then for three seasons after that, they changed the name to It's Happening. So okay. a total of four seasons on uh, CTV, and it was a primetime uh, teenage kind of uh, music show. So then you got you got some record deals. You got Fannie Mae and Tiger in Your Tank. and Yep. Uh, we, the first couple of records that we put out was on the Hawk label, which was Ronnie Hawkins' company, yep. and there was very little distribution. There was a guy that worked for Hawkins and drove... Uh, 
a station wagon, and he would drive, this was our distribution, <laughs> he would drive all over southern Ontario to various record stores and try and convince them to stock the Hawk label, okay. and that didn't work very well. But after we left Hawkins, uh, Capitol Records came along and said, let's do something, and yeah. so we signed a deal with Capitol. Was it a U.S. deal as well, or was it a Canadian deal? It was a Canadian deal, and uh, at that time, um, Capital was pretty much standing on its own two feet in Canada. They didn't get any financial help from the mother company hmm. in the U.S. Uh, I think that probably, well, there's no doubt that they shopped uh, the stuff that they signed in Canada to the U.S. market, but a lot of it didn't get released. Yeah. The record company would suggest songs that they already had publishing on, but we were in the in the process of writing quite a bit as well. So about half the songs on the first album for Capital were written by either me or members of our band. The album is about a 50-50 mix. We were also doing a lot of commercials yeah. in those days. You You mentioned Put a Tiger in Your Tank. That was actually a commercial that we did for Imperial Oil or Esso, oh, okay. and uh, and and I don't know why, but Capital liked it enough to release it as a single, and it did get some airplay, but not it wasn't really a hit. Yeah. Um, and the Baby Ruth Butterfingers thing, Baby Ruth was a candy bar that was a big seller in the U.S., but had never been distributed in Canada, and uh, there was a deal made, and they decided to release. Uh, Butterfinger candy bar and Baby Ruth candy bar in Canada and market it. So they wanted a TV commercial uh, to promote that. So they hired us to write the song and perform it. It was an instrumental yeah. um, the song and perform it on a TV commercial, which we did. And then uh, out of that came a release uh, on record as well. Yeah, but they were so. But that wasn't as Robbie Lane and the Disciples though. No, they didn't want us using our our name. They wanted us to be the Butterfingers. I got you. Okay. You, you had some real successes, and then were there some gaps in your career? Like there were some times when you're, you're really up, and then other times when you're kind of down or things didn't work out the way you wanted? Well, you know, I guess uh, maybe not everybody if they were lucky, but most people in this business uh, end up having hills and valleys. And yeah. definitely after... Uh, 1970, 71. There were there were a lot of times uh, when we were in valleys. We were traveling, doing the bar circuit and doing shows all over so northern and southern Ontario, and some traveling out west and out east. But it was six days a week, and uh, the seventh day you would travel. So that got, you know, that gets to you every once in a while. Oh. And uh, you can't have a personal life because there's no time. So um, I was lucky. I met my wife, Marilyn, uh, in the mid-1960s in London, Ontario. Okay. And we were married, and she traveled with me. So oh. I was really fortunate in that I, she could travel and do all the things that I had to do. That really kept the marriage together. And we, uh, we're still together. We'll be married 50 years this coming February. When you're on the road and you're working in North Bay or Timmins or somewhere like that, 
not that any of those places are bad, but no. you're just tired of being traveling and you're waiting for the agent to call you to tell you where you're going to be next week. Yeah. And sometimes you, sometimes you don't know until really the last minute. So that really takes a toll on your on all of the creative juices that you might normally have had, you just, you're fed up. You know, you, you, you don't want to do that traveling anymore. So that's why I ended up stopping for a while. And now, as you said, now we're in control. We can play when we want to, and it's fun. Yeah. That's, and that's how it all started. When we were kids, we played for fun. It Absolutely. wasn't money. It was fun. So it's interesting yep. you, that you became an agent for a little while. You know, every every agency I've ever worked for, I think, has asked me to come and be an agent. And it's something I always resisted. I just didn't want to do it because it would take away from the... I like music because I like to play music, not because I want to teach music or book bands. So how did you find that experience? Um, I learned a lot about myself, and I learned a lot about that end of the business and became really tight with a lot of musicians uh, and acts that I represented, yeah. which normally you would never have time to do because when you're working every week somewhere, uh, you don't really get a chance to go and see anybody else. Um, so this gave me the opportunity to see a lot of different acts and a lot of different artists and uh, get to know them and, and always learn. And so from that, I took away a great deal of uh, musical knowledge and uh, and a lot of friendships. So I, I, I think that was a very valuable time for me, although not very uh, productive in terms of my own musical career, but still I learned a lot from it. What do you think are the biggest changes in the music business and the music scene over the last, say, 50 years? Well, I guess um, when you think about it, if you look at the decades, uh, the 50s was uh, an incredibly... Um, big time in terms of the birth of rock and roll. I mean, rock and roll had been around in one form or another for years before Elvis came along. But in the 50s, there was all this excitement, Elvis and Gene Vincent and, I mean, Buddy Holly and all of those that you can think of that are legendary to this day. In the 60s, it was the British invasion, the Beatles and the Stones and Dave Clark and all of that. The 70s, uh, in this country... It was the birth of the Canadian content and the Canadian industry. That's when the doors opened for all kinds of great Canadian bands, and we started hearing them all and buying them all. Yeah. Um, things kind of started to change a little bit in the 80s, uh, and in the 90s, I mean, there's music that I love from the 90s, but it's not the same excitement anymore. Um, by that time. But now, there's not the excitement that there was uh, back in those previous decades. It, it's changed. Yeah. But there's always good music. Peter Foldy is a multifaceted talent who has been very successful musician, screenwriter, film director, producer, and speaker. He was nominated for two Juno Awards and has had multiple top 10 hits across Canada and the U.S., most notably with his first song, Bondi Junction, which reached number one on the Canadian charts. 
my grandmother wanted to be an opera singer when she was a little girl, but her parents didn't let her. So she always had a love of theater and opera. And when I was a little kid, she took me to the opera. And oh, to, to it, I, I, this was growing up in Budapest, Hungary, and they had like operettas, which were kind of light operas, which you might call them Broadway shows nowadays. And so I always had an interest in music and people who remember me as a kid tell me I used to sing and stuff and it was kind of pretty outgoing. But really it was in Australia that I really sort of got the music bug. I did go on a little show when I was about 12 called Opportunity Knocks, which is a little, you know, tiny talent time thing for young kids. And you come on and you, you, you kind of compete. It's like, you know, it was like the precursor of American Idol or Australian Idol. And I went on there and I th- think I came second. I sang some hokey song and I think I got some watch or something like that. But that was a very meaningful experience for me because just like it was so exciting to be in a TV studio for the first time ever and to be singing on television. It was taped. And also uh, to this day, I remember the smell of the wood and the paint. There's like, there was just something very magical. And I went, oh my God, this is what I want. When I went to high school, I met a kid whose name was Trevor Gordon and he was my age. And he told me that he was a singer. And I said, cool, you know, whatever. I mean, everyone, you know, everyone's a singer. So, but he actually ended up singing on television. I used to see him on these like Australian you know, variety shows and he would be singing there. And one day he called me up and he said, Hey, I've got these friends and we make these little movies on the weekends. You should come out and meet them. They're really cool. I went, sure. So I go out to his place and his friends turned out to be Morris and Robin Gibb of the Bee Gees. Now this is before they were really famous. They were struggling like anybody else in Australia. And they, they also weren't they weren't cool in those days. They were. They used to wear these little checkered vests that their mother sewed them, and they were like basically adult entertainers. They they made their living. They, I don't think they ever went to school, to be honest with yeah. you. They made their living playing in clubs, like sort of adult nightclubs, and yeah. they would come out and sing "Bye Bye Blackbird" or some you know some Mills Brothers song or some some old standards. They weren't singing rock music. They were singing sort of adult, you know, and they had a little. I guess a band behind them and stuff and they were adult entertainers but they were super talented you know I started hanging out with Trevor and the Bee Gees and I remember being in the room with them and they burst into like they sang the song was I Feel Fine by the Beatles and I, I'd never heard anybody sing harmony like that three people blend like that in a room it was just amazing you know so they Trevor and the Bee Gees were a huge inspiration and I, I said I got this is what I want this is what I got to do you know for those that don't know, you, you came from Hungary, and then you ended up in Australia, and then you moved to Van- uh, to Toronto? Yeah. When I came to Canada, I was kind of lost for a couple of years, but I ended up going to film school at York University and playing in a, in a band at night with a buddy of mine called Joel Clarefield. Joel and I wrote songs together, and I was writing some songs on my own. But one day, Joel said, look, I, you know, I, I can't do the band anymore. My parents are insisting I go to medical school. I got accepted to University of Toronto, and I have to quit. So I was pretty upset, but it kind of inspired me even more. So I started using the little studio in the uh, at the film school to demo and I demoed like four four songs and one of them was Bondi Junction the next day I called this lady uh, called Margaret Margaret Topping she was a music publisher who had published one of my songs which I thought was a really big deal and I said look Margaret I just finished this demo and she said I've got someone in my office who just started a label you should give him a call he's looking for Canadian talent so I called this guy the following week went to see him and he he was like one of these old school record guys wore a suit and tie smoked a pipe had a mustache a very 
didn't didn't let on and he was listening standing by the window listening to you know bondi junction he goes yeah i like this he said leave it with me for a few days i'll let you know what he says i he says i think we have some bands that might record this and i went oh wow that's so exciting you know yeah. I, I never imagined that i would be the artist calls me four days later says can you come in so i go in and meet him and his partner and he says we want to sign you to a record deal and we can do something we want to record two songs to start and we're going to get the best uh session players in toronto we're going to you know spend money on this and really make this successful and i of course i was blown away i was like when well, it, you must have been just thrilled ecstatic with that. ecstatic, oh. ecstatic. I, I went home and told my parents they didn't understand what i was talking about well what about school i said well i'll keep going to school you know but they didn't really get the impact of getting a record deal you know and this is yeah. you know in, in the 70s so the you know we made the record and i went away uh went away skiing in France actually and came back and the record was slow to come out. It, did, it didn't come out for a while. The label was having some issues. I thought, well, you know, this was short lived, but eventually the, the, the uh, record came out and just, uh, had a momentum to it it just started you know building and building first it was like one little station then it was five little stations and it was a bigger station then chum added it you know then that went across the country and suddenly like it it, and also canadian content was pretty new at the time Mm -hmm. and not many people were doing the kind of music i was doing i was doing real pop music in the vein of let's say donny osmond or somebody like that yeah. or herman's hermits and everybody else was kind of backman turner everybody else was a rock band and there weren't many sort of single artists male artists doing that kind of pop music so i guess there was a need and bondi junction just resonated and it really took off and it hit uh, number one on rpm's adult contemporary chart and it was top 10 and number one in a bunch of individual stations across Canada. So suddenly I had to quit school, you know, because the label wanted me on the road. They wanted me on television. And it was like, suddenly, you know, I had quit film school in my last year and uh, dove into the music business. Up to that point, I'd been playing in bands with three other guys and there was three other guys to share all this with. And suddenly it was just me by myself. So that was kind of a drag, not having anyone to share all that stuff with. And my parents, you know, they came from Hungary and they were, you know, working class people and they didn't, you know, they were excited when they heard me on the radio, but they didn't, you know, really didn't get the impact of how amazing it was to have this happen. You know, all this stuff, all these comments started coming in because the internet was was flowing. Um, a label approached me in Toronto asking if I would be interested in doing a best of Peter Foley, like getting, you know, licensing all my old tracks and just putting them out. Sure. So we, we, we worked on that and that took a while to put out, but that was really nice. I mean, it was well received. And so since then, which was, that was in the mid 2000, like 2005 or something like that, I, I've just been moving forward with doing music along with film. I didn't realize at the time that Bondi Junction would, would have that kind of impact. And it's amazing that people still on Facebook say nice things about it. You know, that, I mean, there were a few haters because that's just the nature of the world. You know, it's amazing to me that, uh, yeah, I wrote something that has impacted people's yeah, lives in a small way. Roxanne came out in 76 and that was on uh, Capital EMI and you know that almost became a hit in the States I mean it got great reviews it had a bunch of stations on it Uh, Polydor in the States put it out and they were really pushing it and it just didn't connect because there is so much more in the you know to the American 
music scene. I mean, there's independent promotion. There's just working the radio stations, being on the road, all that stuff, which I wasn't doing. Polydor was working it, but I didn't. I had a manager, but I really didn't have the full arsenal of, of people behind it to make it, to really drive it home. Like it takes hundreds of thousands of dollars or maybe millions of dollars to drive a record up the chart, like the wow. billboard charting in, in the States. But, you know, to a, let's say to a big label with an artist, just hypothetically, Sean Mendez, of course, they'll invest $2 million to make Sean huge with a single record because then they're going to make, they're going to make 200 million when he goes out on tour. So, so it's, you know, 2 million is a small investment in that regard. So I, I didn't have anything like that. And I didn't also understand the business. I was unfortunately naive and I made some bad choices. One of them was to walk off Capitol Records. I'd li- like, I had a manager who advised me to leave the label, that he would get me a better deal in the States. And then 30 days later, he said, I can't be your manager anymore. I'm getting divorced and uh, I have to save my marriage. So he left me high and dry. So I was completely shattered and lost. And people ask me, why didn't you call Capitol and ask to come back? And I don't know the, the answer to that. But that was like really one of the biggest regrets of my life. One day it all ground to a halt. You know, it just like kind of all ended. Ian Thomas is an icon of the Canadian music scene with songs that are still loved by everyone today. His body of work is impressive by any measure, both multifaceted and prolific. So thanks for joining me today, Ian. How are you? Not too bad for somebody who's been in the business for 50 years. My God. It's a half a century, man. Wow. I went through your catalog and I was thinking, man, I could talk to this guy for three days. (laughs) You've you've done so much. Uh, It really is incredible. And then right from 1970, I guess you've been active too, right? Pretty much. You've been doing lots of stuff. Yeah. And you're still active. You're still doing okay? Yeah. It's it's just, it continues to be a really fun life. Writing. I think it's as much an affliction as it is a talent. And so it's just something I do. They're like little signposts in the dirt behind me on my path. Um, It's as though life itself just kind of builds up and you have to vent it somewhere. And, and for me, that's, that's songs. My mother was a musician or is a musician. Uh, She has Alzheimer's right now. So she, uh, she can't remember how to play, but she was an amazing pianist and just a ridiculous ear and she did her ARCT and was a church organist choir leader and and when she was 60 actually she had music published by Lion Haley in Chicago it was stuff she had written for harp cello and flute and uh, so there was always music um, in the house and my father was a Welshman and a philosopher so there was always you know fodder for uh, for thought in in living with that guy, plus he had that ridiculous British sense of humor. So yeah. all of these things conspired with both my brother and I um, that we sort of had no options but to head into showbiz. And it was a manif- magnificent era to, to grow up in. I mean, you know, AM radio was so vibrant. You'd hear, you know, in one format, you'd hear Dave Brubeck playing tape take five followed by Frank Sinatra, then the Stones and the Beatles, Led Zeppelin, then over to, you know, some country song, uh, uh, by, you know, the big country artists of the day. And it was just, uh, it was all over the map. And from that standpoint, really creatively inspiring you because your influences were just, you know, they say music is amongst the most effective of arts because, 
it manages to hit your soul but without the interference of your intellect. So there you are listening to Take 5 and, you know, counting five beat bars and learning about that because the, the piece of music is just so cool. You had said that you were a producer at CBC. Yeah. And then uh, you, when you were working in your band Tranquility Base, what were you producing at CBC? Was it a uh, show? They hired me to produce for the transcription record service. And this, this was a service whereby, you know, you'd find artists, et cetera, and you would do a little EP. And we had a reciprocal agreement with BBC in, uh, in the UK. Uh, yeah. And so I was hired to produce that. And my first job was a weekly show. It was a music program called Ivan Romanoff on a continental holiday with his orchestra and choir. And he had, uh, so 14 voice male choir, 27 piece orchestra live off the floor in old studio G on Jarvis street in Toronto, wow. uh, which I think was originally a chapel cause it was a girl's school. So that was just incredible ear training um, to, you know, get the balances on that. And, and, you know, if you didn't, you'd listen to your mistakes, you know, four days later in the broadcast. So uh, it was wonderful for me. My wife was pregnant. I'd left my first uh, band. I thought my life was over more or less. And, uh, and then I lucked out with, uh, you know, I, I went in, interviewed for this job, and, and I got the damn thing. So it was fantastic. You were done with the band Tranquility Bass at that point? or were you Yeah, just it, the, it yeah. was pretty much on a dead-end club circuit. And, yeah. um, you know, there was a club circuit in those days that was very old-fashioned. The sort of A-listers were, you know, Bobby Curtola and, uh, and, and that sort of ilk. Uh, yeah. Or people who were doing a, a real sort of smooth Vegas kind of thing. Um, so I realized that was a dead end unless you wanted to sell alcohol. And um, it, uh, so I, I left and, you know, I, I thought I'd shot my bolt musically. Um, hmm. And only when I got the job at CBC, um, I started writing again. Um, and so that job not only fed my family, I, you know, we had a kid within, I think, three months of me yeah. getting the job. Uh, from this, you know, financial safety net of this job, uh, and because I was producing other acts, it was sort of compressing uh, my spring a creative spring and that I was seeing where some other writers were maybe failing. And as I was producing these records, I was, you know, helping oversee arrangements, et cetera. So it was a really wonderful period of education for me. Of course, it wasn't that many years after he was painted ladies was 73. Right. So we're only talking a couple of years. I was there for two years and I wrote that yeah. first album at nights uh, after I yeah, got home. There you go. And so did you record that using the studio there? No. Um, okay. I, I walked about a block down the street to the RCA studios and um, um, I had already, I had signed a contract with GRT at that point. Um, he okay. listened to my demos, which I had done on a sound on sound tape recorder. So all my harmonies were on there and it, uh, it was just acoustic guitar voice, but it, it, it managed to, uh, you know, sell the songs in a way. Uh, so yeah, I'd I'd work a full day at, at CBC doing music, and then I'd 
you know, grab a sandwich and uh, or go down to the CBC canteen and then walk a block down the street and into RCA and start working on the new record. That really hit. I mean, that hit hard, right? I mean, were you shocked by that? Did, did you kind of take a step back and go, wow, okay, this is this is serious business at this point? Right? It's funny. I I sort of expected it, which is okay. sounds really arrogant. Um, <laughs> but it, it's sort of a dream I think every writer has. And I had already experienced hearing my first record, uh, if you're looking, the, the Tranquility Bass thing that – you know, I think it was number four on the Canadian chart. And I think it, it was, it may have gone top 20 on the, on the chart in RPM. I can't remember when it started taking off because I was still working at CBC. Yeah. Um, there was something surreal about it all. So I, I, it just was sort of in my stride. Oh, that's great. There's one that's out there and it's getting some airplay. Wonderful. Yeah. But it also gave me, uh, the itch to do more and, and, uh, and leave CBC and, Take, take another jump into the drink. So that was a big song, right? Is that, I, I was going to ask you, is that still your biggest song to this day in terms of overall worldwide success? Well, that's, that's an odd question. Uh, only in that um, some of my other songs did way better worldwide um, and with other artists. When they were re-recorded, yes. Yeah. And even, um, I think some of my biggest uh success was with the boomers in Europe and yeah. um, you know the uh, the amount of money you make in mechanical rights and performance rights in the UK and Europe is uh, is well beyond that in North America hmm. and uh, it was like wow what's yeah. going on here you know <laughs> in terms of my name personal personal name on a record uh, yes painted ladies, uh, was a tremendous uh, success for me and my my biggest uh, success in that regard. Not my biggest success as a writer, um, but as this solo artist uh, version, it was certainly my biggest success. So let me ask you a little about the recording process. So were you right in there in the process or were you more laid back in the studio? You strike me as the kind of guy that was had your face over the console and was right involved in, in everything that was going on. Yeah, and sometimes to my detriment. I think one of the best albums of mine from that era was the Glider album uh, with the song Pilot and yeah, songs Pilot and Time is a Keeper. Uh, those two were, were big airplay songs for me. Yeah. Um and in that album, uh, I sat back and produced, and I, I don't think I played hardly any instruments at all. I, I knew I had great players, uh, yeah. so I'd ask for something, and uh, it was done. Maintaining that kind of overview, I think, in some respects, helped me produce a better record than uh, being sort of hands-on with instrumentation as well. Musicians can offer a lot. Uh, if you dictate too much, they don't feel they have the license to. And yeah. I think it would be fair to say I was a bit of a control freak. I probably could have could have gotten way, way more out of uh, some players if I, I hadn't been so heavy handed. But, you know, when you're sort of young and full of yourself and, yeah. um, you know, you look back and, uh, you know, years of of recording has... Uh, it's changed me significantly, I think. Ray Roper is best known for his time as the guitar player and singer in the iconic Canadian band Stonebolt with radio play and a career underway in the late 70s and early 80s. 
And as an A-list member of the Vancouver music scene, Ray also went on to become a studio engineer and producer and to front several successful bands himself, including the Ray Roper Band, The Edge, and Trauma. So thanks for joining me today, Ray. How are you, my friend? I'm good, Dan. Good to talk to you. Good. Well, good to uh, talk to you as well. Of course, we've known each other for many years, and uh, I've seen much of your career. I, I think I saw you the first time, though, would have been uh, the early 80s. You guys played at Ziggy's, I think, and you did a Stonebolt date. It was around 82, maybe 81, 82, and I was there, and that's the first time I saw you. And then, of course, I got to know you after that. Yeah, so. Stonebolt had a, a really good run back then, and, uh, you know, the coolest thing I think about bands back then and or in my you know instance with Stonebolt was it was a true band where we lived together, ate together, drank together, wrote together, completely immersed in the music. It was it was full on. In doing so, it really garnered a real team uh spirit. There are frustrations that come with it because like you know you start out with you know very little money. Um, but but when the thing takes off and you really do have a brotherhood, I mean there was there's fighting that goes on too. But oh, yeah. um, those um, relationships back then were you know were lifetime relationships. Like my my relationship with David Wills, for instance, has maintained throughout you know ever since ever since the Stonebolt days. We're as tight as ever, and yeah. you know um, it's a lifetime thing. It's um, and the drum yeah. Brian, you know Brian Lowsley, same yeah. thing with most of the guys that are still around and, 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 you know, active in music, John Webster, of course. And uh, yeah. it's, yeah. it's a cool thing. I, I think it's one of the yeah. positives that came out of really, you know, doing the band thing as opposed to uh, <laughs> phoning in your parts. Yeah. <laughs> in the early Stonebolt days, when we were touring in the U S we were, I think we'd done the first album. And so we were, we were, you know, supporting the first album. We were doing a lot of, club dates and and showcases we went to LA and stuff but I, I remember distinctly we, we spent a fair bit of time in Denver Colorado and we played a couple of these bars and it was fantastic um the response and the uh the vibrancy of of the biz and the, and the industry down there and I remember uh, we had we had a crew with us and, and a road manager, and it was decided among the band that instead of all us having our own hotel rooms, we were going to get one big room with a bunch of cots and the gear because it would cost too much to go home. We had like two weeks off or something. It would cost too yeah. much to drive home, so we'd all cram in this in this one rather you know large hotel room it was like a kitchenette sort of deal we had all the gear in there everybody had cots and shit like that and uh <laughs> but we had craft dinner we had beer and we were happy like nobody yeah. complained we were on a high and i think back to that yeah. and I'm thinking i would never do that in a million years and yet yeah. at the time we were supporting a, a new record we were high on the on the music we we had such good responses from the crowds down there. Yeah. It was one of the best times of my life. And and it's yeah. weird because, you know, you and I would never do that now. <laughs> I listened to the four albums and like the, your first four albums. And that's one thing that really jumps out is the vocals are really good. Like lots of great harmonies and double vocals and, you know, different singer. Really, really good. So I can see it worked for you. It was a good formula. Yeah, right on. Um, You know, we were... Our influences at the time were kind of progressive bands like Kansas and 
um, journey and, and you know, the, the melodic rock band. So you can really hear the influences. Although I must say that the, our producer at the time, Walter Stewart, and the record company, of course, like most business entities, were kind of pushing us or nudging us towards more commercial type writing and and songs. So that did kind of happen. Like we got a bunch of songs submitted through Walter. He was a song a song finder and a song plugger. So he would yeah. find stuff on, on like Warner Publishing. He had access to all that stuff, and he found. I will still love you and and uh, yeah. Queen of the Night and uh, Outrun the Sun, um, which were, you know, which were hits and you know, but probably a little lighter than where we where where we lived, where our wheelhouse was. But you know, embracing those songs, you know, you can never uh, you know negate a, a success. I embrace yeah. the I will still love you's and, and that like I, I think it was a great record and I, you know I listened to it last night again and it's like still just wow it's yeah. you know it's got all those elements but deep in our in our souls kind of thing we were we were more on you know we wanted to do more like Kansas and and stuff yeah. type stuff and then <laughs> you can hear it on uh, the second album there's a song called New Lease on Love and uh we listen back to it and we kind of chuckle ourselves because, you know, instead of stone bolt, it's like shot bolts. It's like shots everywhere. You know, it's like there's no flow to it. I was actually kind of a little embarrassed about it. Just to backstep one, one step, how did you end up in San Francisco? Because you went down to San Francisco to do some demos. It was through the record company and through our producer, okay. Walter. Um, so, we went to San Fran and, and uh, went to. Um, oh, we had a we had a buddy down there too um, at his master's wheels in in San Francisco, which is where Journey recorded. And, oh, cool! And uh, yeah. there was an engineer called Smiggy, and uh, we knew him from Vancouver. He was in a band up here, um, so we had a bit of a connection. And we went down and did some demos. Um, and uh, I remember walking into his master's wheels, and there was this ginormous guitar rig set up like with about six cabs and about three heads and all the cabs had a painting over them like all the grill cloths were all painted like with stars and you know cool sort of um existential painting <laughs> and yeah. that was and that was neil sean's rig i found oh. out you know um he had oh. his he's had his stuff set up in there so uh and, and they actually smiggy said well you play through it if you want so i played through neil sean's rig we did we did a few songs in there and a, but um like elliot was a pretty pretty heavy duty producer at the time he did neil young he you know there was a a whole list of of credits that he had done and he called us up to the office me and david and you know he said uh he said, well, what do you guys got? You know, and, uh, you know, we're like, well, you know, we got we got a couple of songs there, you know, a couple of new ones and everything. He goes, throws a guitar acoustic at me. He goes, okay, well, let's hear it. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, what, right now? Like, you know, <laughs> he's like, yeah, give me what you got. What do you got? You know? Wow. And uh, so I looked at David and, we're, you know, and we'd just written uh, a tune called Nights Like Tonight, which is on the second album. And uh, so I said, well, do you want to just, try it out david okay sure so we go into the you know recording of it and and we went into the chorus and we're both singing just just in a room you know nights like tonight you know and yeah. uh 
And uh, I remember looking at Elliot's face and then we, we stopped kind of halfway through and he goes, that's a hit. Yeah. <laughs> Just like that. He goes, that's good. That's good. That's good. a hit. The first one was done at um, Total Sounds West, which became Universal Institute of Recording Arts in, uh, in downtown Vancouver. Um, okay. But we went to L.A. to mix and to redo the vocals and to put strings on. So okay. we went to um, United United Western, yeah, United Western, which is a very famous studio on, on Sunset Strip. Um, huge, huge artists, you know, Beach Boys, Diana Ross, um, yeah. everybody recorded there in those days. It was, I think, four different studios within the complex. Um, I went down and redid, recut my lead vocal down there, and yeah. and then we also got Jimmy Haskell to put on live strings on I Will Still Love You. So um, Nice. So part partially recorded there uh, and mixed there, mixed at United West. Yeah. I guess there's some prestige too when you talk about being in LA and finishing up your album and stuff. There's just something cool about it. There's a cool factor there too, right? There definitely is a cool factor. Um, it's, a, it's a double-edged sword though, which I learned firsthand. And, you know, when we first went to LA, you know, we had stars in our eyes. I mean, we got off the plane in LA and we were looking for a bus and there was a guy standing there with a sign that said Stonebolt and there was a limo waiting for us. I mean, we, oh. we were blown away. We were <laughs> like, it was the heyday of, of rock and roll down there, you know, in the, yeah. in the late seventies, early eighties. And uh, yeah. we stayed at the famous Hyatt house on Sunset Strip where all the rock bands play. Um, and we were just, we were thinking, this is just the greatest thing ever. Yeah. But of course, all those expenses all got charged against royalties. It's all in advance. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's cool to be in these famous, famous um, facilities, but they're expensive and it all is going against your royalties. Thanks for checking out these short bits from my much longer conversations with previous Liner Notes guests. Don't forget you can listen to each full interview at either linernotes.ca or on any podcast platforms. Just search for Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Until next time, I'm Dan here.